This is Floss Weekly. I'm Doc Searles. This week, Simon Phipps and I are talking with Brian Bellendorf, who is the primary author of Apache, which is serving most of your websites that you're looking at right now, and so much more. He's had a long and illustrious career for somebody who's still remarkably young, um, right now working for the Linux Foundation on OpenSSF. Um, he's worked with the World Economic Forum. Uh, we just met at D-Webcamp, had a good time there. He's a DJ, among other things. Uh, he's forgotten more about more topics than anybody else I know, and he says a lot in this show, which is coming up next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Floss Weekly, episode 697. Recorded Wednesday, September 7, 2022. The Life of Brian. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies. Hosted by Bridget Todd, this season of IRL looks at AI in real life. Search for IRL in your podcast player. And by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat discussing tech topics, big, small, and strange. Listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And by New Relic. Use the data platform made for the curious. Right now, you can get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data per month free forever. No credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash floss. Good morning, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are. I am Doc Searles, and this is Floss Weekly. I've joined this week from not quite the other side of the world, but another part of it by Simon Phipps. How are you, Simon? There he is. <laughs> I, I'm a universe away here, Doc. I, I can hear you. You've got the sound of parakeets, and I can hear there's probably grass-skirted hula dancers next to you. And I'm here. I've just been checking the sandbags outside my office because we're expecting a flood. <laughs> And, and I haven't seen the cat for some time because I think she was washed away in the rain earlier. We we, we expect fire here. <laughs> this is California. Right. <laughs> Next week yeah, I'll be back in Indiana. And this this is actually in front of my house in Santa Barbara. Um, my it's been wickedly hot here and uh, hotter for a guest than it has been for me. But it, uh, we have no air conditioning because we share with Northern Europe and perhaps the UK as well. This myth that it never gets hot you don't need air conditioning <laughs> and so yeah. and so we been sweltering my my office is is 106 degrees which is what 40 celsius or something like that mm. 40 something it's up there the high 30s or 40 maybe not sure so you're doing good yeah. you're looking good well thank you yes it's, it's life is busy i've got i'm looking after my my uh my elders uh my son just had twins or his his wife did oh wow he he helped somehow, and uh, you know, Maybe they each really had busy. One. Yeah, they could. I, no, no. I, my daughter-in-law definitely had both of them. She's, 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 she remembers it well. Well, that's that's increasing. As my uncle, who had five sons who all had a lot of kids, called them all reinforcements coming in. So, so our guest this morning is very special. Um, uh, it's Brian Bellendorf, who. Both of us have known for a very long time, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Tell us a little bit about your back, uh, background. With him. I just, I know Brian from covering him as a journalist, but you, well, you were. I mean, been... Brian, Brian is one of the people who I think you could credit as being uh, the originators of the popularity of the web because of uh, Apache Web Server. Yeah. Uh, he's also a, a wonderfully human person who loves the right sort of music and enjoys dancing to it. Uh, he's 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 also one of the people who helped start OSI, where I spent a decade uh, trying to uh, help it survive. Um, and he's also uh, been a, a charming friend to me and to all of my friends for the 20 or so years that I've known him. So, yeah, he's a very special person. So I, I want to I want to get into it as fast as I can. So I'm going to. I'm going to go ahead and give the, the basic introduction because um, uh, uh, there's so much that Brian's done. But right now, he's the general manager of the Open Source Security Foundation, which is an initiative, they call it, hosted by the Linux Foundation, which has lots of these things, which the last time I talked to their people about it, they called umbrellas and other stuff. But they, they uh, it's a foundation hosting foundations. Um, he also serves on, and he's been with another one, with Hyperledger. Um, also serves on the board of directions of the EFF, Mozilla, the Filecoin Foundation, which is a foundation that uh, both of us were hanging out with last last week uh, for the decentralized web. Uh, <laughs> most famously, uh, as you're putting it, I mean, one of the reasons that we have the web that we have is his work with the Apache, with the Apache web server way back when, um, as an even younger man as he, than he still is, uh, Co-founder of the Apache Found Software Foundation, Bootstrap, one of the first web consultancies, and another company called GitHub, but three generations too early. <laughs> and also advised the White House during the Obama years. Uh, he was a CTO for the World Economic Forum, the WEF, um, and he set up Burning Man's first web presence. Um, <laughs> so here he is. Bring him on. Hi, Brian. <laughs> now Hi, now tell me, Hi, did, did you get a laugh out of... Out of um, Simon just saying that you played music people could dance to <laughs> because well, I think he said I enjoy it the same music uh, that he does the right kind of music and, and music you can the dance right to I, I do DJ but I am not quite the best at the whole beat matching thing I try you know it was easier when it was vinyl now that it's all digital it's harder to get a handle on but um, I still play music for friends I actually did at the D-Web camp that we were both at uh, a week and a half ago and that's that's still really fun sharing good music weirdo stuff made by uh, predominantly electronic stuff right but but made by yeah uh, really into it for the fun of it i was i was laughing myself anyway because um the i mean your music is is very moody very electronic uh uh and and this is at d webcamp which is under the redwoods um in in far northern california and um and and <laughs> it was it was kind of music you could you could stand and zone out to i thought more than more than dance to that's not a knock is i thought I, I i loved it i was enjoying it oh, uh, that's really great i appreciate that yeah no it was like I, I, reception music i mean it was i was trying to play something that people could talk over and and kind of get to know each other too and that kind of thing so um uh but no it was a lot of fun so and then you were just at burning man again which you did to us you described as dusty which i think it always is i still haven't been to burning man and i want to go but Hopefully, before too long, I, I'll, I'll get to. But um, I, I kind of want to start out with the the decentralized web or the distributed web, and um, because there's an aspiration there, and um, 
as I told you in, a, in an email before this, there's a, f- a friend of ours, I think. We both know him, but I don't want to give away who it is, that, who, <laughs> who, who wrote a book about saving the web uh, or something like that. And, and his working title for the next book is, Well, We Tried. And, um, <laughs> and I'm wondering, because there's a, a sense I got at D-WebCamp on the one hand, of great optimism, all these great people, a lot of really good developers, working in many cases for a fraction of what they would make um, in the commercial market as a 10x programmer, um, trying to do good things. Um, and um, and yet there's a part of it that felt to be sort of like Jackson Brown's Before the Deluge, you know, where we're, we're actually kind of huddled in a, lying in a burned out basement. <laughs> you know, so and I'm wondering... Do you have any optimism about this or what is your optimism like? I do. I mean, five years ago, it would have been hard to be optimistic about the prospect of any social network uh, being able to uh, uh, compete and challenge Facebook, right? Uh, But now there are several. Um, uh, Years ago, it would have been uh, difficult to be optimistic about uh, the future of uh, uh, chat, distributed chat. But now uh, between between Mastodon, uh, Discord, which isn't really decentralized, but at least is warming up people's appetite for the idea of different servers and different kind of local communities um I, I i we have a different world now i i i'm still i still remain optimistic partly for the same reason you have to be optimistic about democracy or you have to be optimistic about i uh, i um you, you know the 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 future of the climate because if you're not optimistic kind of why are we here i i, I mean it's not unlike one of the reasons you know i decided to have um a kid uh with my partner uh with with kate my wife was you know it's a way to not write off the future it's a way to have to be invested in in making something better and whether you completely win and and the, the internet is re-decentralized uh, or you've simply been a useful way to counter the power of central platforms and central central markets um, uh, you know having any sort of impact is better than having none so so I think it's still a true north worth aligning with um, and 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 worth creating opportunities for and I'm so uh, and I'm optimistic not just because I have to be but because of this community we were uh, in the midst of um, the people there were not not just kind of building toys, not just um, uh, talking about things that are fun, but but not practical. They were building systems that people could run, people that people are running, uh, that are more popular outside the United States than inside. Uh, I tended to notice a lot of international participation there and folks connecting it to co-op, uh, platform co-ops and, and um, initiatives in other countries that aligned with different kind of political systems and, and, and priorities and the like. Um, and people giving giving a damn. Um, and as you mentioned, um, on the board of this thing called the Filecoin Foundation, which is uh, the incentive platform for uh, uh, the a big storage network using a protocol called IPFS uh, as a way to try to uh, not just provide a decentralized alternative to, say, uh, Amazon Glacier, but ultimately an alternative to all forms of network storage uh, and I, 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 perhaps even CDNs and the like. Um, and, th- and that's a system that's running today. It has 15... Uh, I believe the current number, although this might be outdated, 15 exabytes of capacity on that network, which is huge. It's it's several times, <laughs> several, several uh, two orders of magnitude, I think, larger than the Internet Archive itself uh, um, uh, and uh, has been bringing
mean, many of these kind of organizations like Internet Archive, Freedom of the Press Foundation, Witness, uh, other human rights organizations along to, to, to use this network and, and, and see if it's, if, if it can actually serve a purpose beyond, uh, just decentralizing Amazon, right? That, that the ultimate goal has to be something more beneficent, more, uh, uh impactful on society than just, um, taking down the, the big baddie or something like that. So, um, uh, that that that's one reason to remain optimistic. And D-Web Camp was only 300 people, but there are communities of thousands of people out there uh, represented at that event, uh, and 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 all that gives me hope, and 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 hope that that even people a lot younger than you and I um, have some of the same uh, uh, principles and ideas floating in their head that we had when we first landed on the internet, you know, and so that's, that, that was really, it was a great recharge, uh, four days, you know, if anyone can make it to the next one, we I highly encourage it, uh, dwebcamp.org if anyone's interested. Yeah, I, I totally loved it. It's been my, my wife, who we both know is not a camper. She got a cabin. I, I, I have a tent and, um, but I made sure that I had a, a 75 foot long, um, extension cord with a power strip at the end of it going to my dad from her cabin. Anyway, um, you dropped a one-liner that I, I loved a few years ago, which is we need minimum viable centralization. And I'm wondering if a kind of corollary to that or kind of following toward one might be um, what has to be centralized? When, when, I, when I started out, um, my web server was under my desk. I had, you know, 16 assigned IP addresses from, from a competitive local exchange carrier. Um, uh, I, it was very slow. Um, it was something that laid on top of DSL. It was 1995. But Searles.com lived under my desk. I had my own email server. And I'm not that technical, and I could run these things. And now I wouldn't think of having that, even if I had a, 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 an IP address, because I clouds are better places to host these things today. I don't know if that's actually true. I sort of feel that way. But I'm wondering what has to be centralized at this point um, as we look toward decentralizing and distributing as much as we can. Yeah, and when I when we first launched Wired.com on the web, it was on the slow end of a 28.8 modem <laughs> provided by the Little Garden. Do you remember that ISP? Uh, one of the first consumer ISPs in a in in the Bay Area. Um, what has to be centralized? Well, <clears throat> the point of that term, minimum viable centralization, is to get across that uh, the idea that rather than these being two binary states, centralized or decentralized, um, decentralization is a is a vector, right? That um, uh, there is a principle that the more decentralized or decentralizable uh, uh, the better in all sorts of ways that are difficult to measure but but which tend to lead to better outcomes um so I use the example of the domain name system. The domain name system is not as decentralized as uh, some might say the Bitcoin network or Ethereum network or the cryptocurrency networks uh, can be. Um, there is an organization called ICANN, which has plenty of things that it's done over its 20 plus year history that have caused people to uh, be concerned or critical of it, but has tended to practice, at least from my uh, you know, quasi layman's point of view, uh, I, this you know doing only what is necessary necessary to maintain the the trust and the uh, uh, technical competency to keep the domain name system running, which if you think about it, we all take it for granted now. Most people don't know how it works. The fact that it does uh, and the fact that it does not just technically, but also operationally and politically 
is pretty remarkable. Um, it's not attached to the UN. It's not attached to any other, you know, international government uh, or governmental body uh, from the 20 years ago when it's when the main name system management uh, spun out from the Department of Commerce. I think it was. I could be wrong. Um, uh, uh, but it was uh, it, it's 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 managed to keep this network alive by being by asking itself and asking the world, what's the smallest bit of thing it could do? Uh, coordinate two things, the root name servers and maintaining a consistent database across all those 18, you know, top level, you know, domain name resolvers. Everyone agrees, you know, by kind of convention to use as the root of the Internet, although there's many machines behind each of those nodes. Um, and a second thing, which is the universal domain res uh, a dispute resolution protocol, which means if you are if somebody registered Walmart.com and you're Walmart, you can have a process for claiming that as a trademark whether you know and and uh, that's a human process there's that's not a technical process that it involves integrating with legal systems and the like and ICANN's been able to navigate and weave and try to it seems do as little as possible um, in order to keep this alive um, and I see that in other uh, networks I, I you know I, I, I see that's I think the role of foundations in open source networks I think it's the role for um, <clears throat> some of the different organizations involved in the cryptocurrency space and then the, the blockchain space uh, um, and one of the things in the open source world as Simon knows well that that serves as a check on power of these organizations is the right to fork, is the right to be able to go in a different direction than the developers or the people who are attached to the brand uh, can do. And if somebody had a better idea for how to build an operating system kernel than Linus, they can start with the Linux kernel and fork and go in a different direction. And that has forced a minimum viable centralization mode on, on open source software in a really positive way, I think. So <laughs> I have the sun blasting through behind me, so it almost looked like a religious poster for those of you who are, who are, who are uh, watching. But uh, first, I have to, uh, Simon's chomping at the mic to, for, the, for the next question. So, but before we get to that, I have to let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla. IRL is a show for people who build AI and people who develop tech policies. It's hosted by Bridget Todd. This season of IRL looks at AI in real life. Who can AI help? Who can it harm? The show features fascinating conversations with people who are working to build more trustworthy AI. For example, there's an episode about how our world is mapped with AI. The data that's missing from those maps tells as much of a story as the maps themselves. You'll hear all about the people who are working to fill in those gaps and take control of the data. There's another episode about gig workers who depend on apps for their livelihood. It looks at how they're pushing back against algorithms that control how much they get paid and seeking new ways to gain power over data, to create better working conditions. For political junkies, there are episodes about the role that AI plays when it comes to the spread of misinformation and hate speech around elections, a huge concern for democracies around the world. Um, and that is extremely relevant, as we know, because we're entering a a political period here. We don't talk politics on, on a tech show, but tech plays an enormous role in that, and this is a good episode to check out. Search for IRL in your podcast player. We'll also include a link to, in the show notes. My thanks to IRL for their support. So, Brian, I'm fascinated by your, your um, talk about D-Web, um, uh, and particularly by interposing Filecoin in there, because to me, anything with the word coin in it automatically invalidates the D-Web concept. 
Uh, do you think that we're going to be able to pick up on a truly distributed web and get away from the awfulness of the cryptocurrency bubble? Or are we going to have to um, uh, have a completely separate community working on that? Because when I look at the people working on ActivityPub, um, they don't do uh, blockchain. Uh, they do uh, peered message passing. Do you think that distraction is actually a distraction or do you think it has a role to play in the future of the distributed web? So there's a tremendous amount of antipathy, uh, well-deserved for coins, for crypto, um, for, for all things blockchain. And I, and I spent five years in, in the blockchain mines, so to speak, uh, working on a project at the Linux Foundation called Hyperledger, which is distinguished from a lot of the rest of the blockchain space by the fact that it didn't require a cryptocurrency. It wasn't about speculative financial instruments as the red blood cells of a network, uh, as the, as the TCP IP packets. And instead it was about, Here's a way, once you have a community of people, of organizations, of, of whatever actors on a network working together around um, uh, and, and, and wanting a common system of record, wanting some automation, uh, wanting a smart contracts, essentially, here's a way to do it using a consensus mechanism that does not use burning energy as a proxy for political power, which is what this you know consensus mechanism called proof of work is all about, uh, and, and which is horrible. And, and I remember uh, reading the... the the intro and in the first couple of pages of Satoshi's paper in 2009 uh, and going, I hope this does not succeed as an, as a, as an environmentalist, because this is a really broken way to, to, um, to build a, build a society, build a network um, uh, because of this concept called proof of work. But I resonated with the idea of being able to have a payment network that was not dependent upon central actors, central banks, that sort of thing. I resonated with uh, the calls for decentralization and the fact that up to that point, we had not figured out a, I don't want to call it a monetization model, but a sustainability model or, a, or, or something that mirrored how we, we use cash and how we use uh, um, uh, other kinds of financial instruments um, very locally. And there's tons of use cases. We're, you're probably familiar with the, with the self-sovereign identity world, self-sovereign identity concept needs a decentralized platform or at least minimally centralized platform to be able to handle the key distribution and key verification. Uh, uh, and, and so there's all these use cases that started to emerge. I think the one that grabbed me was um, verification of um, uh, uh, diamonds in a supply chain for, uh, 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 you know, uh, to implement something called the Kimberly protocol to try to keep conflict diamonds uh, out of out of out of a diamond supply chain where you, there was no central actor you, that everybody could agree to trust. You needed a distributed database resilient to hostile actors that anybody could write to that you could verify the transactions in in order to have something trustworthy uh, uh, amongst a amongst a community. And so that has been kind of lost and it's been buried in the noise of NFTs, uh, uh, which I do think have a, a role and are interesting have being able to say I have an asset and not have it be attached to uh, a major institution, but be something, again, self-sovereign, self-self-directed, uh, I really resonate with. Um, but the, the community had done itself no favors, both proof of work. The, the, the scams, the, the, the rejection of institutions kind of um, as, a, as a first principle uh, I, I cause a lot of people to rightfully write it off. And each time there's been a downswing to claim victory. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's something here. And, and what pulled me in uh, to Filecoin, you know, uh, wins, if you'd like, uh, around the name. But but first it was around IPFS. 
IPFS being a protocol for, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, using the address of, a, of, a, of an object is the hash of that object. And so, you know, if you've called uh, for that object and it arrives, that it is the same thing. It is the actual thing that you asked for, not somebody's version of that thing or some some hacked version of the thing or some censored version of that thing. It, it, it's it's content address storage, right? Um, and, and kind of like BitTorrent, stuff only stays up so long as somebody is seeding it. Uh, and not everybody can be a seeder on the network effectively, right? Uh, you want to be able to uh, pay other people to seed it uh, and do that in, a, in an efficient way that doesn't just end up re-centralizing it on a few payment providers. And so I resonated with that. I resonated with, okay, this is this is a useful thing to decentralize. This is a useful thing to push out uh, uh, and, and try to avoid uh, encumbering with the same things that end up re-centralizing a lot of the, the 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 things that we've loved to decentralize. I mean, this has been the bane of, of folks working on um, web technologies is every time we come up with something cool like OAuth, it ends up, you know, we envision a world where anybody can be their own authentication provider, their own um, uh, third-party uh, attester to somebody's login, and yet it ends up just reinforcing the centralization plans and, and protocols of a few players. Uh, um, this seemed to be a, a, a great way to address that. It also was full of people, the organization as I met them, the ones working on IPFS and working on Filecoin at the same time, where people like Juan Bennett uh, I, and, and, and Molly uh, 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 Mc... <laughs> Like last name, sorry. Who who leads the engineering team around a lot of this work? They're they're really warm people. They're they're people who got that strength comes from transparency. Strength in technology comes from building a large constituency. It um, that that when you've got a protocol, sending it through the Internet Engineering Task Force is the right thing to do. Uh, um, but I, I, who just had this really expansive vision for it that resonated with. It reminded me more of those early days of the internet and people using uh, uh, um, communities to, to 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 build constituencies constituencies around around protocols. So. Um, so that's kind of why I threw my my hat in there. Um, the fact that it's a currency people can invest in uh, is is kind of a necessary by a a necessary byproduct of the fact that it's a, a payments platform. Uh, but uh, it's I, I think I, I think it stands apart from the rest of the crypto industry. And its mm-hmm. consensus mechanism is not based on proof of work. It's based on showing you're actually storing people things for other people. So its utility is directly connected to its sustainability model, which I really liked as well. Right, right. Well, I mean, I had a go at uh, deploying IPFS uh, on my own systems, and I, I found it was really quite difficult to do. Uh, I found it was difficult to get information material reliably delivered to me. And I also looked into Filecoin and found that it it, it seemed to uh, expect you to be participating on a level, on a scale that made it impossible for small, for individuals to participate uh, and th- overall, IPFS to me feels like it's conceptually the right place to go, but it's still burdened with um, uh, a libertarian ideology that is preventing it from going forward and helping people to do things on a human scale rather than on a finance industry scale. Uh, what, what am I missing? What am I getting wrong in trying to do this? Well, distributed storage is really hard. Um, uh, we're used to a, a, a world where the, the CDNs replicate uh, uh, content you know, on a vast scale across uh, many, many different copies and make it really quick to pull down, right? Uh, and when you compare that to pulling a file down using BitTorrent, for example, BitTorrent is pretty slow because if there's only a few people seeding that network, seeding that content, um, 
pulling it from three different remote IP addresses, even in parallel, uh, can cause things to, to, to arrive pretty slowly. <clears throat> uh, the more replication there is in the network, the more copies of, of that content and the higher quality that the serving infrastructure is. So Filecoin has been trying to in, uh, encourage the establishment of uh, the, calibrated for the right the right type of uh, 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 storage providers, uh, the, those who can run uh, somewhat beefy servers, well connected to the network, uh, that can deliver the content quickly uh, and get paid for that as an alternative to people seeding from their home boxes. Um, now that means it's not perhaps as decentralized as as BitTorrent is, uh, where people might be seeding from over their their home, you know, uh, uh, DSL connections or, or or cable modem connections or the like. But <clears throat> it's trying to address that concern about about performance. Um, this is this is a hard thing to do. Is all I can uh, <clears throat> say about that. And and I do think a lot of the funding model right now is dependent upon attracting investment. Uh, this is yeah. not easy technology to write. So so if it has that that kind of air of uh, at least on the on the websites of a little bit of a of a corporate sheen, uh, that's that's out of a desire to be taken seriously. Yeah. yeah so I think that's. That's really partly my concern. I, I, again, I don't see any of these technologies showing up in uh, Mastodon or in Plume or in uh, PixelFed. Uh, all of those are using very simple peer-to-peer um, uh, -peer message passing mechanisms. They're not using systems that require you to uh, own a data center to deploy them or yeah. require you to be a, a Bitcoin whale in order to get enough coins to be able to float them. Uh, and and that, that's what makes me feel there's this divide between the world that, that Filecoin is in and the world that, uh, 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 that actually Linux Foundation is in and the world that Mastodon and PixelFed are in, where it seems to be individuals who are highly motivated to create truly distributed human scale applications. Uh, and really none of this technology is anything that they even could use if they weren't disdainful of it. <clears throat> well, message passing is a very different thing than serving, you know, medium-sized large files, right? Like, I, I just sending sending 256 bytes around, or, or uh, uh, 280 characters, or that kind of thing, is just a very different kind of use case than than sending around large large media. Uh, and the, uh, you, you know, so it's going to be lend itself to different protocols and 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 different kinds of systems. The the cultural thing, though, Simon, I wish you were at DWeb Camp because you you would have seen. Um, um, a lot of folks mixing between these technologies in a way that doesn't come across when you look at the websites. Uh, I, I, you know, like to bring you into the Slack channels for for IPFS. You could talk there about, uh, I, um, you know, getting uh, seeing where the emerging support is for IPFS into not just some of the other um, distributed web and, and self-hosted uh, uh, and indie web kinds of kinds of approaches, uh, kind of technologies, but into things like WordPress and Drupal as a as a storage platform, right? Um, so I'm not, uh, you know, I, look, it has, it has its own challenges. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's trying to do a hard thing. Um, and at this point, I kind of feel like supporting everybody trying to do hard things, uh, uh, and doing it with, with varying degrees of success, but with, with a measure of success, right. it's more important than trying to draw lines around, around communities. Uh, the only reason I ask it is because I, I, you know, I did have a, 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 a an idea um, over in the Document Foundation and the the uh, LibreOffice community about uh, how we could use IPFS to get away from having Google Docs and uh, Office three six five as our document uh, models, and that that really involved 
bringing those two worlds together. And uh, so I've actually had a go at doing it. And I've discovered it's really hard to bring those worlds together to do something real. Uh, because the side that's doing uh, all the coiny stuff doesn't really like working with the side that's doing all of the, um, the, the, the chatty stuff and vice versa. And uh, so I, I keep on drawing a blank. I'm quite interested in, D, in uh, the D-Web camp. It was just a pity it was in America uh, because um, uh, unfortunately I'm not going to go there uh, for reasons that I'm not allowed to discuss on this program. Um, so well, the, the, the host uh, of this all is the Internet Archive. It was Brewster. Um, and yeah, yeah. I have a sense that he would be he would really resonate with the idea of replicating DWebCamp in other 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 places, other countries. So um, maybe the thing to do is for us to, to go approach him and, and, and see yeah. about doing one in the UK soon. Glue it onto Debian, uh, onto you know, onto DebConf, because they always pick places that uh, people uh, who don't like uh, invasive international security are still able to get to. I, I know that uh, Simon has a follow-up on that, but first I have to let people know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat discussing tech topics big, small, and strange. Compiler comes to you from the makers of Command Line Heroes, another of our sponsors, and is hosted by Angela Andrews and Brent Simino. Technology can be big, bold, bizarre, and complicated. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and the things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know it best. On their show, you'll hear a chorus of perspectives from the diverse communities behind the code. Compiler brings together a curious team of red hatters to tackle big questions in tech like, what is technical debt? What are tech hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started with open source? Episode two, for example, covers what can video games teach us about edge computing? The internet is a patchwork of international agreements and varying infrastructure, but there's something coming to change the ways we connect. In this episode of Compiler, hosts explore what edge computing could be for people who enjoy video games and what this form of entertainment could teach us about the technology. Episode nine, how are tech hubs changing? Traditionally, if someone wanted a career in tech, they've had to make the move to a tech hub, a city packed with startups and talent, but things are starting to change. The hosts of Compiler speak to a few of the change makers who are thinking outside of the physical and social dimensions they've come to associate with innovation. Um, actually, I'm a living example of somebody who came west to join a tech hub. That's where I met um, our guest today and many others. Um, but um, uh, I'm always moving now. And in fact, the place where I'm living most of the time is not a tech hub and wants to be. I'm not even sure that's still a, a viable concept. So really good episode, episode nine there. Learn more about Compiler at red.ht slash twit. New episodes are out now. Go and download them at any time and be sure to check back for new shows. Listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll also include a link on this episode's show page. My thanks to Compiler for their support. Uh, so we were talking a little bit earlier. You know, let's move on to thinking about uh, your, your current day job you know, uh, and uh, s security systems here. Um, is that, you know, what, what's your motivation? for being involved in that is that to do with big corporate supply chains or is that to do with uh protecting civilization you know which end of the scale is that on? <laughs> 
Um, you, you speak of those at least uh, uh, as if those are opposites, but, uh, um, uh, you know, which they might be. No, I, about a year ago, uh, after five years in Hyperledger, I tend to go through, I don't want to say career ADD, but, but the longer I've tended to spend on a thing, the more I've regretted it. Um, so I, I, I always keep my ear open for what's, what's going on. And um, uh, at, uh, there had been two efforts uh, that had started, one centered around uh, GitHub, the other centered around Google, uh, looking at how is it that we're writing software in the open source world from a security point of view, and could we be doing that better? Uh, uh, not with a specific exploit or approach in mind, but simply to say, you know, there seem to be quite a few CVEs in open source, which you'd expect because the code is open, it's easier to audit, it's easier for people to crawl through and find things, uh, and more and more frequent, uh, which you'd also expect as open source is getting used, used in more critical infrastructure kinds of applications, more and more people trust it. Um, but the kind of trust that we earned in the open source world uh, in the early days, where which was really because of a sense of stewardship, a sense of a community taking responsibility for each release. <laughs> you know, at Apache, we tended to, to say you can't can't cut a release until two other people have signed off on it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, the kinds of diligence and processes we had um, uh, that led to people trusting open source software, you know, by default, which was great and helped us scale up, uh, um, wasn't something that that was necessarily earned in every situation. Um, there is a lot of open source, there has been a lot of open source release that has not been built to the levels of diligence, perhaps that we said in the, those early days, and that there's new kinds of attacks that that take advantage of the fact that open source emerged when things were high trust, when finding a package under an appropriate license on a website you'd never been to before or a GitHub org you'd never seen before, tended you tended to trust that rather than not trust it. You might scrutinize it, you might look at the code, but but let's be honest, Simon, even as developers or people who could crawl through code, most of the time we did not before pulling in a package uh, or using it at the very least, perhaps even incorporating it into our, our work. And so... A couple of these uh, developers and, 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 and companies started to put some ideas together about how to address some of these issues. Some of it was supply chain related, um, meaning things like when you're a developer and you're pulling in dependencies, how do you choose which dependencies to use? How do you avoid getting caught by, you know, uh, 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 the kind of typo squatting bugs that had started to hit where you think you're pulling in one package and instead you're pulling in a fork of that package that implemented a cryptocurrency miner behind the scenes, that kind of thing. Um, uh, some of it was around specifications. You know, there's this whole world now that I still don't understand entirely called the DevSecOps world, a part of which is as you're pushing things from development to uh, release and deployment on the cloud, you have different risk tolerances, and and that risk tolerance for uh, uh, should should be associated with your processes for developing software, where you might choose to use riskier, younger modules in one path, and and more uh, stable things in another path. Or simply want to know that the things that were built from source, how verifiable is that? How many people were involved in cutting that release? That sort of thing. So that's a specification called Salsa. Other things were simply a matter of education. You know, if you look at major CVEs out there, they tend to fall into patterns such as, you know, uh, uh, tr too much trust in user contributed input, um, off by one errors in memory allocation and freeing that lead to memory corruption bugs. Uh, uh, you know, these, these kinds of recurring things, which are hard earned experiences for many developers, but you could put into a package and teach people about, which we uh, did. There's a training course called Secure Software Development, which goes through many of these kinds of issues. Um, and so, so these two efforts were kind of put together into kind of a lightly resourced um, uh, thing called, uh, uh, which was then called OpenSSF, uh, I, and 
uh, there wasn't any kind of funding around it so much as like, let's figure this out. Let's let's see if we can do something one step better than the original core infrastructure initiative effort, which stepped in after the uh, Heartbleed incident to try to fix OpenSSL. Had some some success there, but also some challenges. Uh, and instead, let's let's really get to how software is written, and, and not just open source software. Open source is now, by some measures, ninety percent of an average software stack. Uh, uh, so fixing this for open source means really trying to fix it for the entirety of the software world. Um, uh, and uh, I, uh, and so uh, it was the, what what really crystallized things though for us was in December uh, the log for J breach the the compromise known as log for shell uh, that caused some pretty serious earthquakes out there because it was so easy to compromise because log4j was so pervasive throughout so many applications and many people didn't realize they were even using it or what version they were on, that sort of thing. And that prompted um, uh, uh, some attention at the kind of highest levels of at least the U.S. government where they uh, um, we got a call at the Linux Foundation and at OpenSSF um, to uh, to attend a meeting along with Apache uh, uh, and, and uh, 10 other companies uh, convened by the National Security Council, which, by the way, when the National Security Council invites you to uh, an event, it's not a birthday party. It's uh, a pretty serious conversation. And after six hours, the, the result of that was a little bit of a prod to the to, to, to both um, us as nonprofits and, and to the companies to say, well, how are you going to fix the problems that you note out there? I see you've got some interesting starts to fixing these issues, but how do you actually get towards closing these issues, these, these larger systemic kinds of issues that, that are partly supply chain related, partly education related, et cetera? Um, and, you know, OpenSSF by that point had accumulated uh, a couple dozen different initiatives, uh, uh, software specifications, handing out multi-factor auth tokens to developers of important projects, funding of uh, third-party code reviews, audits, that kind of thing. Um, and so we developed uh, something called the uh, OpenSSF Mobilization Plan, uh, which was a um, uh, which is a document that outlines 10 different uh, uh, systemic issues and how we might go try to have a double digit percent impact on on those issues uh, and the community wrote these 10 different streams. They put together targets. They put together a rough sense of how much it might cost to fund the, 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 the center of those, of those solutions. But how much, uh, you know, depending upon volunteerism and then depending upon working with the open source community to get the kind of leverage to have the impact you want. Um, we uh, put this out there and, and realized that these different initiatives would uh, cost some money because you have to pay for some things, um, especially when those things are more like let's encrypt their ongoing services uh, than they are necessarily about writing code uh, uh, and 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 put together this plan that called for $150 million in funding, which um, it sounds like a lot for an open source project and sounds like it's a bunch of corporates asking, you know, the government to pay for something. But uh, instead it was here's $150 million worth of um, prevention that hopefully can lead to several billions or more of cure, right? It'll help avoid spending billions of dollars in curing things after the fact. Uh, and Log4J cost a whole lot more to the industry and to government than $150 million. So so this was the big idea. And and uh, we're executing on that now. Um, OpenSSF is still very much a bottoms-up volunteer, open source community. All these initiatives are public-facing. Anybody can join. We're 
are really desperate for people to join uh, these different initiatives and working groups and the like. Uh, and <clears throat> part of what I'm doing now is going out and trying to get resources for these different parts of the plan, not just from the private sector, um, but but from grants from other organizations and from countries that finally realize that, hey, they need to pony up. They need to uh, help ensure the long-term viability of this software as critical infrastructure. If this is the roads and highways and water and power systems of the modern world, um, there's a role for government to play in ensuring their long-term safety uh, and their long-term viability. And so, uh, and that's not something, not just something the U.S. government realizes now, but but quite a few others around the world. So, um, yeah. So, so that's what we're doing at OpenSSF. <laughs> Brian, you know that was that was a, a very good introduction to to the the project that you're working in. Um, it, just stepping back from that slightly. Uh, do you think that you're covering all of the risks that face software or, or just the ones that impact um, uh, companies that are building software into their products? For example, um, you, you know, what happens when uh, a project decides to uh, corrupt the code because they are disgusted by some of their downstream users, as happened on Node? Uh, what happens when a company decides that they're leaving money on the table and changes to a proprietary license, like just happened with uh, with uh, with Acker today? Are you covering those sorts of risks as well in your thinking? So, uh, I, I think I think the answer is partly yes. I, I in that. Some of those attacks are supply chain attacks where uh, uh, somebody's either you talk about somebody's credentials getting compromised in a world like NPM, where there are many, many, many modules with one developer behind them uh, of small pieces that are incorporated everywhere. Right. Uh, uh, and the prospect of one of those either getting hacked or deciding, hey, they need to pay off some debt. So they'll sell their credentials and they're kind of anonymous anyway. So they'll move on to the next I identity. Um, or uh, deciding uh, to protest uh, the invasion of the Ukraine or, or a sense of, uh, um, you know, being taken advantage of uh, because their code is used everywhere and they don't seem to be getting any help um, uh, and deciding to, I think it was colors.js that um, yeah, that's threw up messages. And, and there was another one that was the, the, the Ukrainian invasion protest where that sort of yep. thing. Um, and there are some techniques to try to prevent against uh, the kind those kinds of surprises, many of which are caused by the fact that they're in so much of the CI/CD pipelines that incorporate uh, NPM and JavaScript, they pull off the the, the tip of the trees <laughs> for many of the dependencies without really adequately testing you know behavior, and, and then they push live right. So so part of part of uh, uh, one of the approaches called scorecards, which is trying to develop a objective measure for the uh, safety of a piece of software and the risk uh, um, uh, around using some code, what one of the things it looks for is, are you pinning your dependencies? Meaning, are you um, pulling from the tip of the tree in those dependencies, or are you locking into a certain version that you've tested and, and no work? Which is one way of protecting against surprises like that. But ultimately, you know, it still depends upon this thing we have in open source, which is if you're pulling from upstream, if you're pulling from the GitHub repo, you're kind of responsible for its behavior and you need to be testing it. There's nothing that absolves you of that. There's nothing also inherently in this that absolves um, the developer burnout issues and that sense of free ridership that happens. Although um, 
I do think that greater security comes from code that is written by teams of people rather than by lone gunmen, right? Um, that come from a development process that has things like people signing off on uh, pull requests, people signing off uh, cut, uh, on releases and putting their names behind it, putting their reputations behind it, then, you know, uh, individual modules aggregated by the thousands uh, uh, and, and, and pushed out. Um, and it, it also, there's, there's a thing about, around identity here that I think is um, worth kind of just acknowledging. I think a lot of us in the early days, you know, the world was smaller. We could know people by their first names. Um, we could meet people face to face often in what we're doing. And we could trust their software uh, partly because of a sense of assurance of, you know, if this is Linus looking over the, the Linux kernel process, right? And, and uh, or, or, or Simon working on open uh, office, that kind of social trust doesn't scale to the thousands of components that are pulled into modern platforms. And so how do we approximate that with with uh, other kinds of measurement of trustworthiness of code, but also uh, uh, we might need to look at reputation systems uh, uh, that don't that take into account the other projects you're involved in and and uh, uh, you know the kind of the longevity you've had in a community and that sort of thing. Um, and really, frankly, should not take into account things like nation of origin or 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 um, you know IP address of your contributions or anything like that, uh, which is an ongoing debate in some circles. I have a question that you're probably not anticipating. It's not on the list of topics we went over ahead of the show but uh, and may not be answerable. But first, I have to let everybody know that this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by New Relic. Devs are some of the most curious people, the first to explore the newest tech, wanting to know how and why things work. That's why so many engineers talk to New Relic. New Relic gives you data about what you build and shows what's really happening in your software lifecycle. It's a single place to see the data from your entire stack so you don't have to look into 16 different tools and make those connections manually. New Relic pinpoints issues down to the line of code so you know why the problems are happening and can resolve them quickly. That's why more than 14,000 companies use New Relic. When teams come together around data, it allows you to triage problems, be confident in decisions, and reduce the time needed to implement resolutions using data, not opinions. Use the data platform made for the curious. Access the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data per month, free, forever, no credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash floss. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash floss. NewRelic.com slash floss. So, so Brian, um, you grew up in, in either involved with or in the shadow of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. Do I have that right? I think I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A little so, town called Lockyada where all the scientists kind of lived. And yeah, it was right at the street from my high school. Yeah. So, so you were around space as a thing. And I'm wondering about open source and space. Um, I'm, an, I'm on a, a list, and it's uh, a couple of people have been on the show are on the same list of people who are trying to, in a very open sourcey kind of way, to get through to Elon Musk and Starlink, and um, not having a lot of success in spite of their really, you know, alpha credentials. And I'm wondering if if open source and space work together very well yet. Um, what what do you think about that? Do you have thoughts about it at all? If not, we'll go on to another topic. <laughs> I, I I can't say I've, I've thought about 
that much. I, I, I you know, look, model rocketry seems like um, one of those domains where <laughs> amateurs uh, have tended to be a source of a lot of innovation, where there's now model rocket clubs that are getting things into low Earth orbit. I, I, but it, but space, the space industry almost tends to be the definition of heavy, heavy industry. And, 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 and um, uh, it's hard to imagine putting substantial amounts of payload or people into space using open source software. I can sooner manage an open source car company than I can imagine an open source space industry in terms of at least like the lift capacity. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 the, the micro satellites boom suggests that uh, the cost of being able to get something sitting in space uh, that is sending and receiving data might come down to a point soon where it's reasonable to think about uh, hobbyists getting getting a platform up there or small companies getting, uh, 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 you know, uh, hardware into space. Um, and I, and I also think Starlink isn't isn't um, in a position where others won't be able to replicate what they do. Although I worry about that from the point of view of space junk and uh, uh, visual pollution uh, for ground based observatories and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, but I don't know if space ever uh, goes com- you know completely open source you know in the way that the internet has. I'm trying to think of other real world comparisons, but um, I, I, it's easier for me to envision the the car industry going a bit more open source than um, the uh, the space industry right now. And I don't even know what network the cell phone in my car that's narking narking on us is talking to. Um, <laughs> so I don't I, I don't have as much hope for that as I would like. So but let me pivot from that to since the space the, the all the space programs are, you know, they originally were government and now they're more private than well private and additional to additionally government. Um, and but you've worked with the WEF um, and and other organizations like that. You've worked in D.C. or with D.C. How do we get governments to care about open source standards, culture, data, um, and the rest of it? Yeah. Well, I, you know, when I when I worked in the Obama campaign in 2008, and then um, when I went to go work at the Office of Science and Tech Policy in 2009, I don't think there was anybody in the executive branch who had ever, you know, written a line of code uh, in their lives. It had been so much the case for 30 years that the principle was technology was what the private sector does. Government actors, whether political appointees or, or you know, the, the 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 mass of people in government, you know, the people employed by the government, all, all shouldn't shouldn't deal with technology. That's something you push out to uh, the vendor community, and that is broken because even to be a, a smart consumer of technology and of companies providing that, you have to know what you want to have built. You have to know how to evaluate what's been built for you, all this. So um, I, I, 2009, me, was very frustrated uh, in D.C. trying to get um, talk to people, not just about open government, which was kind of more the premise I was brought in, but about open source software in particular as um, a, a form of public good as a as a, a way to uh, help entrepreneurship, uh, help avoid concentration of power. Um, I'm still you know still remember kind of the ownership of a platform by uh, of the desktop by Microsoft, right? Those sorts of things, and and that remediating that wasn't about uh, um, uh, breaking up monopolies so much as it had to be about providing better alternatives. So um, uh, that was a very frustrating experience. 
13 years later, um, I'm sitting on a panel, uh, sorry, a congressional committee, the House Science, uh, Space and Technology Committee, uh, interviewing me and the CIO of the Air Force uh, and um, Amelie Caron, uh, who is in D.C. and has done technology for agencies for a long time uh, about software supply chain security and open source software security. And the questions coming from the, the Congress people, not just what was prepared for them by their staffs, but but the responses uh, um, that they gave themselves to, to, to the to, to, you know, the questions, the banter back and forth indicated they knew what they were talking about, that they had been either developers themselves. And I know that's in the history of some of the, the, the folks on that committee uh, or worked with technology organizations and genuinely wanted to figure out what's the right thing for uh for, for American, American citizens was the right public policy, that sort of thing. And we're very clueful about threats that are out there, but also opportunities. They wouldn't uh, have a dismissive attitude towards open source software that, that I think we're so used to. So part of it has been the long slog of the last 30 years of educating uh, both Congress and, and people who are um, the, the long-term folks in government and policymakers uh, about about open source software and open technology. One of the, uh, I, I think, best sources for this has been the Kennedy School at Harvard, where so many future policymakers, you know, take courses now has a, a, a huge number of people teaching technology policy who are very wise to open technology culture and the like. Um, and I decided to spend some time in D.C., not because I wanted a career shift, but because I kind of wanted to to do my part. And, and I think um, every technologist, everybody listening to this podcast um, has a, 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 a duty. I, I almost said obligation, but I kind of feel that way, obligation to find a way to participate uh, and can lend their expertise to the systems of government to help help people help them make smarter decisions, help uh, educate them about open software, open standards, open technology culture, the like. Um, whether you work for government or simply work for an organization that exists around government is kind of fine. Just don't do it to, to build a career. Do it to to have an impact. Uh, and um, you'd be amazed how far you can go when you're worried more about the latter than the former. Um, uh, and, and I think as a result of many people doing that, especially from the Obama years forward, uh, I, and planting seeds and helping rescue healthcare gov and, and other things like that, I think we're in a much better spot in the United States, and many other countries are following suit. The U.S. right now is clearly taking the lead on security and open source software, uh, I, and uh, I, I, you know other countries are, are watching what's going on there in the EU and, and Japan and Singapore and the like. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm much more reassured about this than I've ever been uh, that uh, uh, that they get it, um, and and hopefully that getting it can also be connected to the resources to address the kinds of issues that we that we see out there. Yeah. So I, I have to say, I, I agree, Brian. Um, I, you know, I, my day job is uh, being the standards and policy director for Europe for uh, the Open Source Initiative. And uh, we're just staffing up uh, in that area uh, because we're discovering that governments are taking open source so seriously that they're beginning to frame policy that uh, both uses it and influences it. And as a consequence, that needs uh, input, a voice that's coming from 
the uh, uh, every person developer rather than only from the big corporate lobbyists that uh, the 501c6 trade associations represent. So I, I'm with you completely. I think that that is, that is beginning to happen. Uh, I, I see the divide as being um, in the US, the focus is very much on security and supply chain. In Europe, the focus is very much on, on privacy and on uh, the control of technology. Um, do you think those two things can be reconciled or do you think we're going to see a war, uh, so to speak, between uh, Europe and the US over open source and regulating it? I'm told we have to have a quick answer, so that's probably a really bad question to ask you. I, I don't see a dichotomy <laughs> there, Simon. I, I, I don't see, you know, corporations care about their privacy too, just as much as individuals do. Uh, uh, their own privacy, of course. Uh, yes. And I, 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 and I think there's there's so many of the privacy technologies come from the bottoms up, but are are uh, seized and grabbed a hold of and, and, and taken further by, by companies. But I, this whole dichotomy between companies and developers, I don't, I don't see. Software developers and open source have been uh, uh, you know funded and resourced by by companies startups to, to large ones since the earliest days and I think we just need to do less yeah. of this kind of you know positioning of battle between the two than than we tend we, we tend to see some yeah no I, I don't think I'm pointing at a, a dichotomy there I think I'm, what I'm suggesting is that uh, Europe is very much focused on the privacy of the individual and that is being weaponized by the European corporations. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it's very much about the security of the supply chain, and that's being weaponized by the U.S. corporations. And I think both are going to result in attempts to regulate open source in one way or the other, uh, or uh, enact regulations that affect open source. Uh, and I think that's where there's going to be a, a conflict between the two sides. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, maybe it's the optimist in me, um, but I, I don't see them as irreconcilable. <laughs> I, I, I see them as additive. Yeah. Uh, Doc, you go that way. I'm and you'll mute yourself. yourself. I have to yeah. get off mute before I start talking, and then I don't. <laughs> um, this is <laughs> an old dog that, yeah, there it is. Anyway, um, so, so Brian, quickly, is there anything we haven't asked that you'd like to have touched on, if we can touch on it briefly? No, I, I, you know, the the work we're doing at OpenSSF is work that we hope helps every open source project uh, that we hope I, I addresses some of the long term uh, issues we've had in open source around sustainability. Uh, recognizes the role that open source now plays in critical infrastructure uh, and and um, and the need that society has for us to try to reduce the number of log for shells out there or make it easier to recover from when they happen. Um, and that's really the, the the message I'm on these days and, and wanting to, to raise awareness around and that we we could use everybody's help. There's actually a really small core group of people making OpenSSF happen. Uh, and uh, I think every open source project and every open source using organization has a role to play in this fight. So so we'd love to see you. Uh, I'd love to see folks help, uh, help us with that fight. That's great. And uh, I, I, I hope people watching and listening will do that. Um, final... Um, Pair of questions. Uh, what's your favorite text editor and scripting language? 
<laughs> uh, I'm s- still uh, uh, an Emacs uh, uh, guy, although I, I obviously end up writing a lot of emails in, in Pine, so I have to count Pico, I guess, uh, uh, informally for that. Uh, yes, I still use a text mode email client for, for like my personal emails, uh, work mail is still Thunderbird, but I, um, I, I'm still, I'm still, uh, I, I still love kind of text mode and terminal kinds of apps. Uh, I think there's a reductionism to it that that is just lovely. Uh, what was the other question? Oh, uh, t- uh, text uh, scripting language, I guess. Oh, scripting language. I, you know, it, it, it's kind of like you. It's hard to give up your first love uh, or your first uh, uh, kind of thing that you really immersed in. And so, um, if I ha- had a gun pointed at my head and I had to write software, and frankly, none of you want to see the software that I would have to write these days, <laughs> it would still be Perl. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, that's a minority answer. Although we we do do get more than a few of those. So. Um, <laughs> Somebody wrote here favorite code repo, favorite web server. I think we probably guessed the favorite web server. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the favorite web server is easy. It's nginx, of course. Uh, okay. um, uh, I, I, I can't use it though. I'm not Russian. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a little of the back channel on the on the uh, you pearl yuck. Yeah, I know. On the I know. Screen. so this this has been great brian um it's been awesome having you on the show um you always manage to pack a lot into every answer and i'm I'm glad i'm glad uh i'm glad to have you on we'll have to have you back soon to see how everything's going thanks doc it's really great to see you and thank you simon too (laughs) so simon (laughs) a lot packed in there i think i think it was i was I was joking in the back channel that I don't think anybody's going to listen to Brian at 1.5 or even 1.4 because <laughs> I think he talks faster than anybody we've had on the show, which is a good thing, actually. Yeah, well, it's, it's good to have you know it's good to have the show extended out to an hour and a half, uh, and uh, you know it's uh, <laughs> as always. I think Brian is as uh, um, upbeat and uh, thoughtful, and you know what is there to say on those issues there's plenty of discussing that we can do around every one of the topics that we were discussing there yeah i i i love how much he works on making the world work and um i suppose every open source developer is doing that but i think brian is much more global than many others and uh doing you know taking on the hard thing um now before that it was with hyperledger which is really difficult um as a, I mean, not hyperledger, but the general, the general uh, category with, with blockchain and all of that. Just to, you know, to, to go to the go to the crazy places and make the best of it. I, I really like what he's doing, and he's a hell of a jo- disc jockey too, by the way. <laughs> well, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things that we did at, uh, at um, the ApacheCon in Oakland was put on a uh, a. a rave disco in his honor at the uh, Apache Con there. And uh, uh, I, I don't think people realize the effect, the influence that uh, the underground music scene has had on the world of open source through bringing Brian into uh, developing software publicly in the way that he has. Uh, that, that, that's definitely worth covering at some point, I think. That's an interesting thing. I, I wish I knew the music better. Um, when we were at D Webcamp, Brian was was showing me his controls and on the laptop and 
what he was doing and all the different and lots of interesting things about the artists and about which, of course, I know almost nothing. Um, probably nothing is it. I, nothing will do. Um, and I've probably already forgotten which Brian was showing me, but it was totally interesting while I was standing there watching him, you know, play his mighty Wurlitzer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great stuff. So what, what have you what have you got to let's see a life of Brian? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting. So yeah, we come up with names for the show, life of Brian. Well, people might actually think it is Monty Python, though. Well, and what with Brian always looking on the bright side of life. Yeah. So okay, we can we can go over other <laughs> look at the bright side. That's an interesting thought. Well, this is great. So, so what do you what do you want to plug there? Or did I already ask you that? Well, I, um, no, you haven't. Uh, you know, the 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 thing that um, I think a lot of listeners and viewers will be interested in um, is at OSI. One of our new directions has been to start a podcast on uh, some big issues, and uh, we have started a podcast about um, the licensing and ethics of artificial intelligence called Deep Dive. So if you go to deepdive.opensource.org, uh, the podcast is there, um, completely unaffected by uh, the identity of any sponsors. Uh, we've gone out and found um, the key individuals around the uh, the ethics, licensing and direction of AI. And uh, we've interviewed them. And then our next phase will be to hold some panels where we begin to work through the, the deep issues. And I think I would love to see uh, the folks who uh, follow uh, Floss Weekly going along to deepdive.opensource.org and uh, listening to the podcasts and then maybe watching the panels when they come out because I think they're going to be really good. They're wow. going to be um, very much determining the future. That They're not committed to being uh, upbeat and positive. We are willing to uh, mm. say that there are some, some difficult and bad things. Uh, but on the other hand, we are trying to be constructive and to drive the argument from the perspective of the individual rather than of the corporation that is trying to leverage AI. Yeah. It might be the most important topic. I think I've tried to list the most important topics as one of them. I think the the mysteries of AI, um, it, it, I, th I think we need human comprehension of whatever we're doing, whatever that is, and to not have it or to have some other form of comprehension competing with ours or manipulating ours um, um, is hugely, hugely interesting. So people should go, go there, check that one out, check that one out. Um, we, we don't, we haven't confirmed a guest for next week, so I'm not going to plug that. Um, um, but I will plug the show. <laughs> Please come back next week. Um, and, uh, uh, in in the meantime, I will be back in my in my office in Indiana, where um, where I'll have the right microphone and the right everything else. The sun will not be moving across my face like it has here, <laughs> and, and the screen. Anyway, it's been great having it, having Brian on the show. Thank you, Simon, and we'll see you next week. Listeners of this program get an ad-free version if they're members of Club Twit. $7 a month gives you ad-free versions of all of our shows. Plus, membership in the Club Twit Discord, a great clubhouse for Twit listeners. And finally, the Twit Plus feed with shows like Stacy's Book Club, The Untitled Linux Show, The Giz Fizz, and more. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. And thanks for your support.